0: So what we have to do, we have to do a little something to get you going into the message this morning, and we have uh, uh, about three more songs after the message, but uh, anybody good at commercial slogans and commercial jingles and things like that? Got, Got a couple people in here that if I were to list some off, you'd be able to name it right away what the slogan was. All right, our first one. See, I was going to give away all these prizes and stuff, but some of them are jewelry, and I thought, eh, you know what, we're not going to do that. So we're just going to, we're just going to uh, play as if you can win, okay, and, and just call yourself a winner. I, I promise it'll be okay. Um, there's this tiger that goes, they are great! Anyone? What is it? Frosted Flakes, thank you very much. Yeah, I need some response here, okay? Next one is, and the funny thing is they've brought it back now. Where's the beef? Wendy's. Wendy's, yes, very much so. Where's the beef? Next one. Uh, I'm not going to sing it just to save your ears, but uh, give me a break. There you go. Anybody want to sing it? Anybody want to sing it? Come on, sing it for me. That's terrible. Forget it. I'm glad. Forget it. Hey, Jerome, don't use him, okay? Um, Melt in your mouth and not in your hand, even though it's a lie. M&M's, that's right. That is definitely a lie because there's many a times I've had a rainbow in my hand after eating them. Uh, The best part of waking up is what in your cup? Folgers. Once you pop, you can't stop. That's a tough one. Pringles. Who got it? Over here. Pringles. You got to snap into a... That's right. Snap into a Slim Jim. That's one of my favorite favorite wrestlers when I was a little kid. That was always, uh, always great. Randy the Macho Man Savage. Be like Mike. No, Mikey likes it. It's life cereal. Be like Mike. I want to be I want to be like Mike you know that one no. who had it I heard it back there in the back Gatorade Gatorade and then of course this is the one see I was going to give away a prize that everything matched I was going to give you a bottle of Gatorade for getting it right or give you this one here would run the hard one every kiss begins with yeah. K that's right every and I can't give away diamonds we have a we have a pretty decent budget but not that good um, You know, it's real easy with company slogans. We all have them in our head. The the reason why we go through advertising, the reason why advertisers get paid so much money is to get those things stuck in your head. I mean, to give me a break, break me off a piece of the Kit Kat bar, that is like from the 60s. Did you know that? That's how long that's been around for, but it sticks in our brain. Uh, Chick-fil-A, if I asked you what Chick-fil-A was, eat more chicken, that's right. Eat more chicken, it's not spelled right, and the cows come out, and that's what it is. If I said, you know, 15 minutes will save you 15% on your auto insurance. Yeah, everybody knows what that is. It's so easy a caveman can do it. We just, they're just there, and they stick in our heads, and we love it. And The funny thing is I was thinking about with, with McDonald's even. McDonald's had the I'm loving it, but they always had that ba da ba And now that's all they do. They don't even add the I'm loving it, but we know exactly what it is just by the sound of it. So whoever got that jingle is getting paid a lot of money because they did a good job with, with getting it stuck in our head. Now, I'm not sure if you've been reading the book or not a fan book that we've been going through, but if you have, chapter 11 talks about the slogan of Christianity. Anybody have any idea what that is? Get God? The slogan that the, the pastor who wrote the book uses for Christianity is come and die. Come and die. That is not, And, and I, the, the funny thing is I actually took classes on advertising. As weird as that might sound, I took, I, to get through college you had to have an art arts thing and I didn't like music and musical theory and playing instruments and stuff. So I went to University of Phoenix and got my, my art credit in how to make a movie. That was what I got my uh, my art credit in. And then there was also one that tagged with that was advertising. And it's amazing the thing that advertisers do that you don't know about. You don't want to know what a train represents on a commercial, okay? And a train going into a tunnel. You could probably imagine if I'm not going to tell you what it represents, but I'm not going to say it out loud. The, the, all these different things that advertisers do to try and really subliminally hit you and make you want to do these things. That is the reason why each and every slogan sticks in our head but the thing is is do you think that the slogan of Christianity that that this pastor who wrote the book says is very appealing does it does it make you want to jump out and say hey yeah that sounds great let me ask you the question with with that being let's just say that is the slogan of Christianity because really that's that's what it is it's it's come to Jesus and as we talked about in Luke nine twenty three, take up your cross daily which is a symbol of death. So it is come and die. What do you think the slogan of the church is? What do you think the slogan, not just, and a, we could even say this church. We have a slogan. It's written on all of our stuff. It's on our little business cards there. Come as you are. Be changed. Go change the world. So we have the come part. And I guess maybe the be changed could be the fact that we're changing from our old self to our new self, and that could be the the die part. But if if we were to look outside in the broad spectrum of, of churches, the churches of America, would you say that come and die fits into what we believe, what we're trying to attract, when we put out our advertising, if you will? Is come and die the thing that we want people to do? Because honestly, if it was, if we put on every church, come and die, do you think people would come to church? No, because see, I think what happens is a lot of times in churches, a lot of times in churches, we're into the advertising mindset. We very much need to advertise Jesus, and advertise Him as well. We've all seen the pictures of Him. We've talked about it before. The the Jesus that that. Um, is on all of the, the pictures. And we talked about even a couple of weeks ago. Um, the, the white, feather-haired, par- center-part, f- fluffy, prissy Jesus that, that's not the Jesus that was there. But for whatever reason, that's the one we see. And, and that's the one we advertise. But I think, I think what happens is is that we get wrapped around the come part of the whole message. The... John three sixteen, part of the whole message, which is completely true, which says, For God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son, that whoever, anyone, any one of us that believes in Him can have eternal life. That's the gift of God. And it was a great gift, and it's a gift we've been given. But we take it to the next level, and we look at that next thing, and we say, okay, is that where it stops? Is that where Christianity stops? Because it sounds good. In an advertising sense, that sounds good. I get a free gift. Everybody likes free stuff. I get a free gift, and there's no catch to go with it. I get to live in this world, and then I also get to go to heaven. I get the best of everything this world has to offer, and then I get to go to heaven. Sounds good, doesn't it? That's a great advertising scheme. As a matter of fact, when I was a kid, and as I grew up, there was a, there was a term that we used for those kind of churches, and that was called seeker-friendly or seeker-sensitive. Because those people who are seeking Jesus, that's what they want to hear. And that's great. All for it. Because that's exactly what people do need to hear. But they need to understand something else, that having the best of both worlds isn't exactly the case. God has come along and he, he provided Christ as more than a fire insurance policy, if you will. He provided him as more than just... The ticket puncher on the train to heaven. The reason why Christ came was to live and die and raise again. But while he was living, he set us an example of what to follow. And that is where Luke 9.23 comes in. See, it doesn't stop at John 3.16. John 3.16 is only the beginning. Luke 9.23 is where it picks up when it says, Pick up your cross daily and follow after me. Pick up your cross daily And follow after me. That's where this die comes in. Have you ever heard that that adage? um, Why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? Um, Generally, it it has to do with what guys say about girls when a girl wants to get married and the guy doesn't because he's getting everything he needs anyway. Um, It's a terrible thing to say. But I think sometimes we think about that way with God, too. Why buy into this die thing if all we have to do is come and we get heaven out of the deal? And we, we stop there and we, we, we forget what Christ really came for. Christ, when he comes into our lives, he changes us. He takes us from the old to the new. That old self dies. The new self comes along. The old is gone. The new has come. A new life form begins I guess the best way to put it is a transition takes place. I'm not sure about you. Transitions are hard. Transitions are hard. Anybody in here ever moved before? Yeah. Going from one house to another house, even if it's in the same city, is not easy. It's great being in this house and it's great being in this house, but that time in between is not easy. There's a transition that takes place. Um has anybody in here ever uh, had a kid? Okay, I have not had one personally, but I've got to deal with one after the fact, okay? There's a transition that takes place for you moms. Some of you are in that transition stage right now. And there is this baby growing inside of you that is kicking you and making you uncomfortable and you know you can't sleep right and there's all those things that go on with it and there's all these pains that take place and then there's a transition from here to out here that I understand is quite painful um, and, and to hold this baby there's a transition to, to, to bring in this new life and then I think this transition continues for about 18 plus years um, And and I've learned that over the last 10, that this transition doesn't stay easy. I remember those days before children that I could go out and do whatever I wanted without having to get a babysitter or having to try and line something up. Or I could stay out late because I could sleep in the next morning. That was okay. But there's a transition that takes place that isn't easy. And that's kind of where we're at. We would rather have the easy part than the hard part, right? I mean, in all honesty, None of us say, you know what, I really like it when things are hard. I really like life to beat me up. I really like it when I'm dealing with difficulties at work or difficulties with people. I really like that. I mean, we'll take a challenge now and then because it just kind of keeps us on our toes, but nobody likes to live in that pain all the time. And we enjoy that good challenge, but we want to go back to the norm. We want to go back to our usual, and that goes for at work, it goes for at play, it goes for even here at church. We like our routines. How many of you this morning when you walked in couldn't find your seat because we changed the seating up a little bit? You can be honest. I understand. If you have Baptist in your soul, you have a seat, okay? I, I've been Baptist since I was 12 years old, and I have been in fights with people about being in their seat, Okay, Um, it's a discussion we have often. Well, these are our chairs. I said, great, take them home then. We'll buy new ones to replace your chairs. And that way they'll be the church's chairs, you know, that kind of thing. Um, The idea of norm, this was not intentional, having the, uh, the gate dropped over here in front of the coffee. But how many of you walked in and went, where do I go? What am I supposed to do? Even though it's open on the other side, The gate didn't go up for whatever reason, and we just had to, you know, make an arrangement. But we get into these routines, and everything is normal. And we don't like it outside of normal. But when Christ calls us to come and die, there's this transition that takes place. This transition, this hard thing that has to take place of us dying to ourselves. Us dying to that thing that we've lived with. And some of you maybe just recently came to Christ. For 10, 15, 20 years, you had a life outside of Christ and weren't expected to live the way that Christ has asked us to in dying to ourselves. It is not an easy transition, but it's a transition that we need to make. It is a transition that churches really don't advertise because it's not easy. We'd rather be happy, not challenged. And as we read through this book, I'm not sure if you've had a chance to, but I think that's the reason why this book's been so hard for me, because it's just nothing but a solid challenge. There's another book out there called Radical by David Platt. Another one of those ones that's just constantly challenging us to live the way that Christ actually said versus the way the church has taught for the last hundred years. Because the church likes to make it light and fluffy because we don't want to scare people. And I hate to say that this isn't a light and fluffy message. It's about coming and dying. You'll see the title of it is called The Comfortable Cross. Is there such a thing? Can you have a comfortable cross? We'd like things to be easier. And it was funny, I got to thinking this week, and I'm not sure if you got a chance to look at the blog, but in in the time that I was uh, blogging about it, I looked and thought, there's not a single invention that I can think of That's made life more difficult. I mean, maybe the treadmill. (laughs) But, even still, that keeps you from having to run out in the cold. But I was thinking through all the different inventions. All the different things. And I think part of it came in because um, I was getting frustrated with my phone. My phone has a map on it. And uh, I was going down to to Sadie's. uh, Christy's parents were in town. And I was looking at my phone for the directions. And I couldn't remember off of Asuna if it was south of Asuna or north of Asuna, And... um, I turned north, because my phone had said that was the way it went, but it didn't pinpoint me right. And I had to turn around and go back the way, and I was like, stupid phone. And then I got to thinking, a year ago, that wasn't even possible. Ten years ago, wouldn't even been thought of. Twenty years ago, nobody knew you'd have a phone in your hand that wasn't attached to a thing with a, you know, those things. But we all complain about it because, oh, I can't believe it. It's like I was on an airplane about, I don't know, about a month ago. And they said, okay, the Wi-Fi has been enabled. You can open your computers now. And I went, what? They have Wi-Fi in an airplane? This is awesome. I open up the computer and I'm like, oh, it's $5. Is it worth it? Yeah, I'm flying all the way across the country. So I get on it. Well, it, it had some hiccups. And I'm like, oh, this is so slow. This is so ridiculous. I'm getting angry at it. And literally... It had only been 10 minutes since I found out it was even available, and now I'm mad that it's not working the way I want it to. You ever been like that? It's because we like easy, and we like those kind of things. And I really believe, I really believe that, that we want it to be easy, and we want Christianity to be easy. Luke 9.23 says, take up this cross, this instrument of torture and pain, and do What God wants us to do I mean we've taken the cross and we've dressed it up I'm not sure if you've ever been in a church that has it on the wall and there's like glowing lights behind it to make it shine real pretty and stuff like that I can honestly think that if first century Jews were to walk into our buildings that had the the cross on the wall they'd be like what is wrong with you sick people it'd be like us having a an electric chair sitting right here in a guillotine over here on this side You know, like, praise God, we have the, you know, and and we we wear them around our necks, and we we wear them in our ears, and and we we have them on our shirts, and, and all those kind of things like that, but it is a symbol of death and torture. I mean, if you really think about it, that is what it is. It was a humiliating thing. It was a symbol of pain, and a symbol of suffering, and a symbol of humiliation, and a symbol of death. And that's what we have as our symbol for Christianity. It's kind of one of those crazy things. Last week, I was watching the Packers uh, beat the Falcons, and, uh, and one of the Falcons' star defensive players was on the sideline, and uh, I think his name's John Abraham, but he, he had been hurt, and he was just dressed in street clothes, and he had these two giant earrings that were just massive-sized diamonds. And he had this cross on his, on his outside of his shirt that was also this huge diamond-studded cross and i I actually started laughing when i saw it because the whole symbol of the cross is christ to us but what does that diamond studded thing represent does it represent christ does it represent everything that christ stood for that thing could probably feed a nation if he were to sell it for a month if not more in some third world countries and yet he's wearing it as Yes, I'm a, I'm a believer in Christ. Look how God has blessed me. Or whatever, it, I don't know. I don't know what that's supposed to say. But we look at those things, we see those things, and it kind of blows your mind. If we have to follow Christ, he's asking us to take up this cross daily. And I don't think he said, put a cross in your ears or wear one around your neck. I don't think that's what he's talking about. When the disciples were asked by Jesus personally to follow him, what we talked about last week, we talked about that idea, the Talmud and the group that follows behind him. We see this group that's there and if you read through and you see when Jesus talks to them, he says, follow me. Their response is they dropped everything, their families, their jobs, their houses, everything they had and followed him. When he says, follow me to us, What's our response? What's our response? And we look at that, we think about it, and you know, one of the things I was thinking about with this is I wonder if the disciples ever had second thoughts. If they ever walked into a group of people that weren't the norm, that Jews didn't hang out with, or that especially a Jewish rabbi in his talmid wouldn't hang out with. If they ever said, what am I doing here? Why did I sign up for this? Should I go back to my fishing career and have a comfortable life? Because it's a whole lot better than what we're doing. I have a bed to sleep in. I have food that I know I'm going to eat. I know I'm going to have money coming in. Should I go back to that? And the other question I think I wonder if I thought about, and I think this is the one we probably struggle with the most, is, is what's everybody else going to think? When we walk into this group of people that isn't the norm, what's everybody else going to think? When I become a fully committed Christian, or in in what we might call a radical, becoming somebody who is a a hyper-Christian, you know, following Christ and denying ourselves, and saying, sorry, I can't do that because I'm a follower of Christ, and I'm doing this in response to Him, not because of some legalistic thing that somebody said, I have to follow these rules, but instead, because I want to... Show this in love to Christ. I want, to, I want my life to be changing. I want the old self to die and the new self to come. Are we worried about what everybody else is going to think? I think they might have. I think the disciples might have struggled with something like that. I don't think we're alone in that struggle of what, what's everybody else going to think. The first century Christians that Paul wrote to, struggle with it as well. I'm not sure if you've had a chance to, uh, to read through the Bible at all, but um, Paul writes many different letters to many different churches, and there's two of them that, I, that uh, or one church that I want to focus on that he wrote two letters to, and that today is the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth is uh, where we get the letters of First and Second Corinthians from. And when we look at that and we see it, um, I want to give you some background and some understanding of, of the city at Corinth and the struggles that they had over there. Um, Corinth was an important city, and it had been for, for a long time when Paul was writing. It sat on an isthmus, and what an isthmus, and that's difficult to say when your tongue's dry. Um, what an isthmus is, in case you don't know, it's a strip of land that connects two larger pieces of the land with water on each side. So where Corinth sat at was a main trade route for these two bodies of land as well as these two bodies of water. So it was kind of an intersecting point for all sorts of different people and all sorts of different cultures. And where it sat at, it meant that there was plenty of opportunity for a melting pot, much like America is now. You know, we have a melting pot of different types of people from, from all different nations all around the world. Everybody kind of comes here to, to look for the prosperity or their ancestors have come here and so there's a huge melting pot here. Well, this is what the city of Corinth was like. And the city of Corinth was, had temples and shrines and altars to all sorts of gods all over the place. I'm just going to give you an example. There's a, there's a god by the name of Aphrodite. You've probably heard that before. They actually had a temple in Corinth that had a thousand sacred prostitutes available for you to be able to worship Aphrodite. Kind of a crazy thinking there. But it's... Similar to what we have going on all around us here. So when you think about the Christians at Corinth, think about the junk that they were dealing with and the outside influences that they had. Much like us today, probably even worse. But all these things were surrounding them and Paul wanted to tell them, hey guys, the world outside, they're going to ridicule you for your faith. They're going to tear you down. They're going to say, what's that person thinking? Why in the world are you pushing your life to be more like Christ when you have all these things that the world has to offer? And, and Paul writes to them in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. And if you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to read verses uh, starting in 18 through verse 29. He really kind of lets them, lets them have it. And he, he commends them first of all in verses 1 through 17 but he also kind of lets them have it to say hey there is a difference between you being the old self and you being the new self and and when christ comes into our life we need to have the new self so read along with me here what it says starting in verse 18 it says the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction but we who are being saved know it is the very power of god As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for a sign from heaven and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? That people want to have these miraculous signs and that people want to to figure it out with human wisdom through science and things like that. And when they don't get that, people are offended or they think it's nonsense. Into verse 24 it says, But to those who called... Uh, Those called by God's salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considered foolish or in order to shame those Who think they are wise. And he chose the things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. What Paul tells the church here at Corinth is offensive to religious people, like I said, and it doesn't make sense to the intellectual community. This idea that Christ died on a cross to save us from eternal damnation. It's hard for people to understand. People are going to think you're crazy for it. He's telling this to the church at Corinth, and I really, truly believe that God had us in mind too when he he wrote it. And God, God uses something that is completely strange, this cross, to show this wisdom that he has. And the funny thing is, is as we look at it and we, we think about it, we see this in our culture today. We have this idea. I remember when I was a little kid, and, and people would, wouldn't really understand God, and I, I wouldn't say, I guess, too little, but maybe junior high, high school. I had this idea, God, why don't you just peel back the sky, stick your face out, and say, I'm here. I exist. Believe in me. Jesus is my son. I sent him to die for you 2,000 years ago. Believe in him. We'll be together here real soon. Wouldn't that be great? We wouldn't have to fight with people. We wouldn't have to worry about it. He's God. He could do it. But he doesn't. And I got to thinking, the reason why I think we and the Greeks and the Jews at that time want it that way, it goes back to that idea of being easy. It goes back to that idea of easiness because if God did that, we wouldn't have to have faith because faith takes work. Faith is hard. I had a discussion with an atheist guy not too long ago. As we sat and talked, he was like, well, I don't understand how you could have faith in a God that you can't see. And I said, I don't understand how you can have faith in a God that you don't believe exists. It takes more faith for an atheist, I believe, to believe that there isn't a God than it does for a Christian to believe that there is one. And we kind of went round and round, and I told him, I said, you know, what it boils down to is, is if you're wrong, you go to hell. If I'm wrong, I just die. I said, that takes faith. And that was what with the, the conversation ended with. He left on that one. And, but that, that's really what, where it all boiled down to. And, you know, I think, I think this idea of having to work for it, is difficult for people. And then even then, when we do have faith, why did God choose to use this cross that we've already talked about, that it's the, the, the symbol of humiliation and death and suffering and, and all the things that go with it? Really, it's a sign of weakness. It was a sign of weakness. And yet, God took that, that thing that so many people think are foolish and twisted it around to make it the power of salvation like this verse talks about. The message of the gospel is that God came to earth in the form of man and was cruci- crucified. And not only was he crucified, but he rose again. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians that that is a foolish message. Because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And it's hard for us to grasp grasp that. And I think that's exactly what God's point was. It wasn't the fact that he wanted to make the cross beautiful, but I think he wanted to use something that was weak and full of humiliation and really powerless to show off his glory. And the crazy thing is, is if you've read the book, he, uh, the, the author uses this statement, what God did for the cross, he can do for you. Because if you look back into that verse, into that passage, it talks about the fact that how many of us were rich and powerful and, and wise beyond our years when God found us and brought us to where we're at? If you are rich and powerful and wise beyond your years, come and talk to me. I could, I could use you. Um, but other than that, you know, I, I'm pretty much a moron. Okay, it's it's not like it's some hidden fact. I'm not I'm not up here acting like I'm I'm something special. And I think if you're honest with yourself, you're kind of in the same boat. But yet God has used us in such crazy ways. He has used us to do some things that are almost unbelievable. And here we sit. And here we have the opportunity to continue to be used. We can use the excuses and say, no, there's no way that God can use me because I have this in my past. Or there's no way that God can use me because I have done this or I have this family that I've come from or whatever it might be. And we use whatever excuses. But God says, you know what, forget the excuses. I can use you. I've taken what people thought were foolish, the cross, this foolish message of the cross, and I've used it to save your life. I think I can use you when people even might think that you're foolish and change you. Paul says that God chose the weak things and he chose the, he chose the foolish things. And we look at the cross and you might say, well, okay, that, that's one example. But I went through and I found some things. Look at all the people that God used and the different excuses they might have had. Abraham was old. Jacob was insecure, Leah was unattractive, Joseph was humiliated, Moses, Moses stuttered, Gideon was poor, Samson was proud, Rahab was immoral, David had an affair, Elijah was suicidal, Jeremiah was depressed, Jonah was disobedient, Naomi was a widow, John the Baptist was eccentric to say the least, Peter was impulsive and hot-tempered, Martha worried a lot, the Samaritan woman had several failed marriages, Zacchaeus was unpopular, unpopular. Thomas had doubts, Paul had poor health, and Timothy was timid. If you ever wonder why God is using you, it's because he's God and we're not. And we understand that. We used to have a a saying when I was in youth ministry, when I very first started, there's two things that are true in this life. One, there is a God, and two, you're not him. We always have to remember that. We always have to remember that, that God is God, and he uses us in some crazy, crazy ways. And that cross that God used... For the power of salvation is a cross that he asks asks us to take up daily. It's a symbol of weakness, humiliation, suffering, and shame. And Christ asks us to take that up daily. Is it going to be easy? No. Plain, simple, no. I'd like to beat around the bush and say, hey, let's sugarcoat it and put a little frosting on it, and it'll be easy. But it's not. But I'm pretty sure when Christ was walking with that 125-pound beam on his back after being beaten and scourged and had the crown of thorns shoved onto his head that he wasn't thinking, this is easy. So when he says take up our cross, he's not saying this is easy. It's funny, the other day I was, I was getting dog food at Sam's Club and it was a 55-pound bag because my dogs are huge. And, and I went to lift it up and I'm like, my goodness, this is a, this is a heavy bag of dog food. And then I got to thinking I've lost 77 pounds in the last couple of months due to, due to everything, and I'm like, I used to have this around my waist. And I was, you know, kind of doing this, you know, the Aaron Rodgers title belt, but it was a big bag of dog food, and people were probably looking at me funny as I was doing that, but I was thinking, man, this was a lot of weight that I lost, and, and I got to thinking, that's not even half of the weight that the beam of the cross was that he had to carry for, for miles down dirt roads after being beaten to death, nearly, just within inches of his life. And he says, take up your cross. And he, of course, said, take up your cross well before this ever happened. But he knew what was going to happen. And, of course, it wasn't like this cross was the first thing that ever happened. It was a, it was a typical way for execution. And it was, it was that thinking that got me to say, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to do this? I think God says, if you want to follow me, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be open and vulnerable. We talked about that with the intimacy last week. And connect with him and allow him to change you. Come as you are. Be changed. I was talking with somebody this week and they said, you know, God accepts you where you are. I said, no. God doesn't. I said, God accepts you where you are through Christ. You can't just leave it there. He doesn't just accept you for who you are. He accepts you for who you are through Christ. And he wants you to change, and he wants you to grow closer to him. So will you take up your cross, or will you continue to follow the crowd? Because really, there's two different directions, two very different directions. I've got a video I want you to watch, so Corey, would you go ahead and run that? The words to that song where it says, uh, oh, the wonderful cross, where I come, and it bids me to come and die so that I may truly live. I said it's not an easy choice, but I'll tell you what, the results are pretty awesome. And it's that transition that is so difficult. I'm going to ask the band to come up. We're going to sing a few more songs, but the first song we're going to sing, the first thing that we're going to sing is the song called In the Shadow of the Glorious Cross. And once again, it's just one of those weeks that Jerome and I didn't sit down and say, hey, let's let's do this because it fits perfectly. But I was listening to the song this week and um, it very much sounds like a, an old hymn, but it's really only a couple of years old. But it opens up, it opens up with what I think just nails it right on the head as far as explaining what our response to Christ and His and his goals should be. It says... In the shadow of the glorious cross, compelled by grace to cast my lot, I discard the loss and bear your name, forsaking all for your own fame. I think this line, when I see it and when I hear it and when I, when I sing it, really talks about that my repentance should come not from some legalism, not for some thing here, but because of the, the love that I have for Christ. And the love that I want to return give back to him, and I really see it as, as that we need to to give up our old self and, and shed this old self and bring on a new one that the whole idea of come and die as we bring it as we sing it, I think that that I just want you to think about that, and you can either listen to it or you can sing it, but but really think about what 's being said here as we pray this. This prayer to God. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for what you've done in our lives. I thank you for what you've done in mine. Even though I don't have a great past, I do have a great future because of you. I look at the life that you've given me. And God, I don't understand why you use me, but you do. And I'm sure each and every one of us in the room can pray that same prayer. Using the foolish to make even the wisest look foolish. Using the weak to even look, make the strongest looks, look weak. I pray you use us this week, Lord. All for your glory. I pray it in your name. Amen.